Today, I'd like to talk about our attitude and how it affects our ability to develop on the path. And this started with our sutta study on Wednesday because we talked about the Buddha's death. And one of the things, of course, in, in that is reading the Buddha's last words. You know, in that, in that brief period just before he passed away, he said a number of things that seem really um, understandable, talking to the Sangha about not appointing a new leader, but encouraging them to look to the Dhamma for their, um, their guidance. And also to maybe, you know, if they wish to let go of the minor rules and various things like that. And then there was this one line in there where he said, after my passing, give the prime punishment to the mendicant Chana. And it's kind of like, wow, what, what happened? Why would you say that? Like right at the end of your life, you know, it's like, that's an Ananda says, um, but sir, what is the prime punishment? So even Ananda was like, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> and so it's, it's kind of interesting um, what the Buddha explains that Chana may say whatever he likes, but the other mendicants are not to advise or instruct him. And then as I'm teaching this retreat on non-self, I happen to uh, find and kind of be reminded of this sutta on Chana. And I hadn't thought about it at all when I read the words that the Buddha uttered at the, at the last there about Chana, but now this makes sense to me. So apparently Chana had become or was quite stubborn, arrogant, um, unable to take in feedback and guidance. And according to the commentary, this is because Chana was the Buddha's charioteer on the night he left the home life to uh, become an alms mendicant to enter the noble search. And that Chana's close relationship with the Buddha had caused him to be arrogant and full of pride. And he wasn't taking any kind of advice from anyone else. And that this is what led the Buddha at the very last to say, don't instruct him. Don't give him advice. In fact, in the Pali, it seems like he's saying, don't even talk to him. But in the translation, uh, Bhante Sujato didn't put that in. And I, I think it might be because it was, it might mean like, don't talk to him about, you know, changing, <laughs> you know, so it might not have been a, a full on um, cold shoulder, but at least uh, enough. Uh, to, uh, it actually was enough to give Chanda some pause, or Chana some pause. So it says here that on one occasion, 
a number of monks were dwelling at Varanasi and the deer park at Isipatana. And then in the evening, the venerable Chana emerged from seclusion and taking his key from dwelling to dwelling, saying to the elder monks, let the elder venerable ones exhort me, let them instruct me, let them give me a Dhamma talk in such a way that I might see the Dhamma. So he's admitting where he's at on the path and he's asking for help. And when this was said, the elder monks said to the venerable Chana, form is impermanent, feeling is impermanent, perception is impermanent, volitional formations are impermanent, consciousness is impermanent, form is non-self, feeling is non-self, perception is non-self, volitional formations are non-self, consciousness is non-self. All formations are impermanent, all phenomena are non-self. Those two lines show up a lot in the suttas. They're very important, like all conditioned things are impermanent and everything, all dhammas, all things are non-self. So that first one is, of course, all things in samsara, the things in this world and every other realm are impermanent. And even Nibbana is non-self. All impermanent things and all um, lasting things, which would be Nibbana, are non-self. But then Venerable Chana is thinking, well, I know this. I think that way too. But my mind does not launch out upon the stilling of all formations. In other words, I'm not, I'm not eager to completely let the mind calm and let go of everything. The relinquishing of all acquisitions, the destruction of craving, destruction, cessation, nibbana, He's not going there and he's wondering why. It's kind of like he gets it intellectually, but he doesn't get it at the heart level. He's not getting it at the direct experience level and he doesn't know why. Instead, agitation and clinging arise in my mind and the mind turns back thinking, but who is myself? So he's still concerned about his, the self such a one does not happen to such a thing does not happen to one who sees the Dhamma. So who can teach me the Dhamma in such a way that I might really get it? Basically he's saying that I might see the Dhamma. So it occurs to him that Venerable Ananda is living at the Kosa, at Kosambi in Gosita's park. And he's praised by the teacher and esteemed by his wise brothers in the holy life. Now, of course, this is all after the Buddha's death and most likely after Ananda has realized Nibbana and, and become one of the Arahans. It says, so I, since I have so much trust in Venerable Ananda, let me approach him. So he straightens up his lodging and takes his bowl and robe and he travels, walks to the Gositas Park in Kosambi. And he comes to the Venerable Ananda and he exchanges greetings with him. And after their greetings and cordial talk, 
are completed, he sits down to one side and he says to the Venerable Ananda, let the Venerable Ananda exhort me, let him instruct me, let him give me a Dhamma talk in such a way that I might see the Dhamma. And then Ananda says, even by this much, I am pleased with you. Perhaps you've opened yourself up and broken through your barrenness. Lend your ear, friend Chana. You are capable of understanding the Dhamma. And these words have a big impact on Chana. At once, a lofty rapture and gladness arose in Chana as he thought, it seems that I am capable of understanding the Dhamma. And then Venerable Ananda says, in the presence of the Blessed One, I have heard this, friend Chana. In his, pleasant, in his presence, I've received the exhortation he spoke to the bhikkhu Kachana Gota. And so that's actually in another sutta, which is only um, filled. It, it has ellipses here, but we're going to fill it in. And this is what the Buddha said to Venerable Kachana Gota. This world, Kachana, for the most part, depends upon a duality, upon the notion of existence and the notion of non-existence. But for one who sees the origin of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, there's no notion of non-existence in regard to the world. The world exists, here we are. The birth of a living being coming into the world has an existence. Obviously, I'm adding that part. You can tell the reading voice probably, right? (laughs) And for one who sees the cessation of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, there's no notion of existence with regard to the world. This world, Kachana, is for the most part shackled by engagement, clinging, and adherence. But this one with right view does not become engaged and cling through the engagement and clinging perception and and viewpoints, adherence, underlying tendencies. They do not take a stand about myself. This one has no perplexity or doubt that what arises is only suffering arising. And what ceases is only suffering ceasing. His knowledge about this is independent of others. It is in this way, Kachana, that there is right view. All exists, this is one extreme. All does not exist, this is the second extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata teaches the Dhamma by the middle, with ignorance as condition, volitional formations come to be. With volitional formations as condition, consciousness, and on he goes through the entire um, uh, dependent origination sequence. And then he says, such is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. But with the remainderless fading away and cessation of ignorance comes the cessation of volitional formations. With the cessation of volitional formations, the cessation of consciousness. 
So then it's the cessation of name and form, the cessation of the six sense bases, the cessation of contact, feeling, craving, clinging, becoming birth, the cessation of aging and death. Such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. And when Ananda finished retelling this discourse to Chana, Chana said, so it is, friend Ananda, for those venerable ones who have such compassionate and benevolent brothers in the holy life to admonish and instruct them. And now that I've heard this Dhamma teaching of the venerable Ananda, I've made the breakthrough to the Dhamma. I think the things that jump out at me in this are um, how Chana's attitude kept him bound and unable to make progress for so many years. If he really was the Buddhist charioteer 40, 50 years before, he was quite an old fellow by the time he... Um, realized and it was through the monks giving up on trying to help him and to realize that we can change anytime and it can be helpful and to see how much humility and really being honest with ourselves um, of course and and with our trusted friends in the Dhamma about where we're at and what kind of like a sense of what needs to come next. So one of the things that I think of from time to time is a, what's the edge of my understanding? Because if we think about like, what, what is it that I know without a doubt? And what is it that I'm not sure of yet in the Dhamma? And then having the intention for that, to know that, to understand it, is powerful. We can bring that intention up in the mind when we practice, and we can... It's not, it's not like a goal. You kind of can't like just uh, go after it directly, but allow that um, invitation to linger there as a contemplation, as an intention. So when, when I was living at Chithurst, or maybe it was even earlier, but I was at Chithurst at the time, I am... Um, I felt like I really didn't have a, a full understanding of non-self. And I, I can't remember if I've told you the story before or not. If I have, forgive me. But I was thinking, here I am living in this great monastery with all these excellent practitioners. And this is my chance. This is my chance to go deeper into understanding this doctrine of the Buddha. And 
I'm not even sure I like the use of the word doctrine there, but to have this understanding of this reality of non-self. And I went into meditation and that, that invitation or that wish to understand was there in my mind, but that was, that was it. It's not like I can just do something to make that something happen there. So I just went into, into meditation and my mind without my prompting was able to examine that there was definitely nothing that we could call self in the khandas. And then the mind went out and recognized that there's nothing beyond that that we can call the khandas either. And I think this is what the Buddha is talking about. I wasn't thinking about any of this at the time. It wasn't like there was some preconceived idea of how this would all work. But afterwards, recognizing that the Buddha talks about this, there's no um, discernible, there's nothing we can apprehend that really is self. We talked about that not long ago in, um, in a different sutta, in the simile of the snake. And this is the way, so the Buddha, this is why the Buddha doesn't say there is a self or there isn't a self. He just says, try to find it. Where is it? Um, and that process of bringing up an intention about what you don't, what we don't know yet, and allowing that to linger in the back of the mind, just be held there in contemplation, is a way that we can invite, and it has a lot of humility, humility in it. You know, we can't be thinking, "Oh, I've got it. I know. I know everything." <laughs> it doesn't work no matter how much we wish it were true if it isn't and when it is we don't have a self or ego around it either because that's not the way the dhamma works so holding a contemplation in mind and allowing the process to take its own course to bring insight and clarity and confidence in the Dhamma. And when things like this happen, it's not like there's some personal gain. It's just an understanding of the way things are that unfolds and it's quite humbling. So it seems um, that humility is such a, a valuable characteristic to cultivate. And it's also very freeing, more peaceful than trying to uphold some idea of being somebody or something. It's super stressful to maintain a self. <laughs> it's really a challenge.
And as soon as we shift away from that, we feel better. And of course, the world is always encouraging us to show up um, as a personality, as a self, to gain, to um, impress. And the interesting thing I've noticed, even with people who have um, a lot of responsibility and maybe manage a lot of people, is that if they shift to this kind of humility and selflessness, they're so respected and so appreciated because they're trustworthy. They're not trying to prove anything. And of course the mind can shift into um, identity perception anytime and we have to keep an eye on it with that because we do have strong conditioning and many situations in the world that can feel threatening. And I think that's, you know, understandable and a primary cause for the mind to want to kind of protect itself in that way, protect what we think is a self. But with wisdom and mindfulness, we can understand that and then give some compassion to that part and still let go. So I think I'll close the comments there and for your reflection and we can to uh, some meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.